Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Happy National Poetry Month. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world without poets. We're so lucky to have these beautiful souls in our world. And to celebrate, I'd like to invite you to Feminist Book Club's Virtual Poetry Night on April 30th. It's at 7 p.m. Central Time, which is 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. We've invited some of our favorite poet friends and asked our community to join us in a night of poetry readings. Not a member? No problem. This event is open to the public and it will be ASL interpreted. Click the link in the show notes to register for this gorgeous event celebrating poetry and poets alike. Are you ready to spice up your bookshelf with some feminist fire? Then look no further than Flowers of Fire, the inside story of South Korea's feminist movement and what it means for women's rights worldwide by journalist Hwan Hyung. This book takes you on a wild ride through South Korea's feminist movement, where badass, brave women fought against sexual abusers, dodged defamation lawsuits, and went on a birth strike to push back against pressure to marry. You'll meet activists who are changing a criminal justice system that's suspicious of victims and sympathetic to predators. It's a feminist revolution that'll leave you cheering. So put on your best protest outfit and grab a copy of Flowers of Fire by Hawan Young, out now from Ben Bella Books. Hey everyone, I'm Jordi, and with us today is Alex Marr. Alex and I will be discussing her book, 70 Times 7, A True Story of Murder and Mercy, which is set to publish on March 28th of this year. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So first off, could you tell us a little bit about this book and the case that is discussed throughout? Sure. So 70 Times 7 tells the story of a murder that was committed by a 15-year-old girl in Indiana back in 1985. But that really is just the start of the book. So you have this violent event, and the majority of the book is really about the incredible aftermath of that crime. She was very soon after sentenced to death, even though she committed that crime at 15. And it set a lot of wheels in motion. It just garnered a huge amount of interest in Europe Maybe even more extraordinary is the fact that the grandson of her victim, Bill Pelkey, chose a few months after her death sentence to forgive her publicly against the wishes of his family, his friends, his community, and campaign to try to save her life. So there's this incredible cast of characters who have very little in common, whose lives are brought together by this single violent event. And that's been the last five years of my life (laughs) researching this. Yeah. So how did you first hear of Paula Cooper and this story? I often go with my gut when looking for new stories to explore in my nonfiction. I also write long-form journalism. And I was following just kind of an instinctive interest in violent crime committed specifically by women because it's far more rare than instances of, of, of violent crimes committed by men. So I started looking at case studies, and I looked at probably close to 1,200 case studies of, of crimes committed by women, homicides. And along the way, I saw the story of the murder of Ruth Pelkey, who was this elderly Bible teacher in Gary, Indiana, and realized that the crime had been committed by this young teenage girl, Paula Cooper. I was so struck by her age 
so struck by the fact that it was still, I mean, honestly, it's it was constitutionally permitted in this country until as recently as 2005 to sentence a teenager to death. And I was also really struck by the the forgiveness piece of this. And so I dropped everything else. And I just thought, okay, whatever, wherever this case and this story is going to take me, that that's where I, I need to go. And it was a far more complex and layered undertaking than I could have anticipated. Yeah, there's so much that could be discussed when it comes to, you know, the criminal justice system, specifically relating to juveniles. In this book, you mentioned how juvenile detention centers have become a catch-all for adolescents who act out. And in this example, Rhonda, who is Paula's older sister, has run away from home one too many times. And instead of the judge and officers and social workers asking and probing, like, why is this girl running away? They kind of treat her like a child who is having an unprompted temper tantrum who needs to be disciplined. And why do you think it is that it's so common for adults in our justice system to dismiss the alarming physical and emotional well-being of youths in the hope of keeping families together? Yeah, that's a huge question. First of all, I should say this was in the 80s. And the 80s don't sound like they were that long ago. But I mean, we've made we've made some leaps and bounds since then. In the 80s, I was forced to realize, you know, we didn't take child abuse as seriously. We didn't take alcoholism in the home as seriously in terms of, you know, how that would impact the kids. And there have been a lot of shifting attitudes about, do you remove kids from the home? Do you try to keep them together with their parents? I was able to talk to a major juvenile court judge from that era who's remained deeply involved with the system in Indiana, Judge Stefaniak. And she told me, you know, She felt that there were a lot of resources available at the time for young kids, but that you can't prevent the system from becoming overwhelmed. So this was a situation where these two young girls, Paula and her sister Rhonda, they were in an abusive home situation, running away from home, skipping school, and they were given the kind of serious care and attention that their social worker should have given them. The court mandated that their parents attend family counseling with them as a requirement of the girls staying in their house, right? Mm-hmm. The parents just refused. They cursed out the social worker to her face. They refused. At a certain point, Paula, when she was about 14, ends up going in for a mental health evaluation because she wakes up one day in bed, just catatonic. She refuses to interact with anyone. She's so stressed out by her situation. She's given an evaluation, and a few days later, she's sent back home with her parents once again. And you could see in the press at the time when they backpedaled and tried to come up with a background for Paula Cooper because of this sensational crime, they were using language like that as if to kind of explain, well, maybe that was the first inkling of a criminal nature, right? Uh And, And it's fascinating to see how that works, how the media takes part in the system in that way. And unfortunately, today, we still have some aspects of that you can see in sort of the way that younger people accused or convicted of crimes are portrayed, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I worked at a school who the students there had, you know, run-ins with the law, but they also screened for psychological and emotional behavior disorders. And you can kind of see how, or like if you work in any of those settings or know anything about it, the stories from, you know, even the 1980s and earlier are still very similar to things that happen today. 
And it's like, I think people like to put up sort of a guard when using terms like a truant or a runaway to kind of make the punishment for whatever the juvenile has done as a justification instead of trying to understand, you know, people's backgrounds or what's been happening, like what got people to the place that they were at to commit those things. Right. Exactly. It's interesting because part of the process for me, I'm a literary nonfiction writer and I take on very different kinds of stories. So I'm not someone who came into this specifically as a crime writer or someone who writes about the justice system. I was drawn in by the individuals involved in the story, right? And so I was struck by how much the justice system is also driven by kind of like a process of storytelling, right? Whose story you allow to be told in these spaces, what information you allow to have introduced, it can have a huge impact on how a jury or a judge perceives this kid, right? And who has the power to shape that story and give weight to different parts of it? It's, it's so significant. You know, the abuse in her home was really underplayed in her sentencing hearing. It really was. And that just came down to her having a public defender who was underprepared and really not at the top of his game. You had a sentencing hearing on a capital charge for a teenage kid who had been pled guilty by her public defender with no deal on the table. And the sentencing hearing cumulatively took a few hours. I mean, in a lot of cases, that should be taking days because the death sentence is on the line, right? So it was so wild to look back at and to see, you know, even her appellate attorney later on said he he ordered up the transcript in order to take over her case and was so shocked he called it the itty bitty transcript that he got, right? Because there wasn't there weren't that many people testifying that day. You know, it's remarkable. Yeah, that was one thing that just shocked me. I was like, not only did her whole trial take less than a day, but the judge was able to come to a decision on the same day. I was like, how is this even possible with everything well, that's know, involved? <clears throat> I will say it wasn't actually a trial because she did plead guilty. So it was ultimately a sentencing hearing, but there's so much you can do to try to impact the sentence. He didn't, in theory, he did. He was not required to hand her the death penalty. And he was actually Judge Kimbrough. He was super respected and still spoken of, you know, in reverential terms in Lake County, Indiana. He was the first black criminal court judge in the region. And it was, a, you know, in a region that had a really strong black community. So people noticed him, t took note of his role. He was very much personally against the death sentence. And this case and the fact that he felt cornered into giving this young girl the death sentence without a doubt changed his life for the worse. So you sort of saw a situation where someone was really trying to come up with another possible outcome for this girl and felt that his job was to follow the law and, and this was what the law mandated. So that also became another theme in the book, which is, you know, when do we push back against the system, especially if you're working within it, whether you're an attorney or a prosecutor, a judge, a justice on a state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, right? Because if the death penalty for kids is on our books, at what point does the system need to make a change? At what point do we decide that that is too cruel and unusual? to stand. 
And, and it was a really fascinating opportunity for me to, to try to really wrestle with that question. It, it, it seems wild looking back now, but only about 15 plus years ago, you know, we couldn't agree as, as a country as to whether or not it was cruel to sentence to death, let's say a 16 year old kid, right? So that, you know, when you put it in plain language like that and you remove it from, kind of fancy legal speak, it just hits you, I think. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned in the book too, that America was the only country that had that as something that was allowed legally. Yeah. As the story progresses, we end up being the only remaining country that has the de- had the death penalty on the books for juveniles. And I mean, the only country, which is really wild. The other countries that had held out were countries we suppose that we claim to have so little in common with, not Western European nations. And then you look forward to today, you know, you kind of fast forward. And right now we are the only country that has on the books the ability to sentence a kid to essentially to death in prison, right? Uh-huh. To life without parole. That's an option here. It is not an option anywhere else. It's this very tough on crime ethos that a lot of our system runs on is still very much in play. You still see it in 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 the headlines all the time now. And it's it remains a platform that politicians can run very successfully on till today. And that was something that I I tried to also um take a look at with the the prosecutor in this case, Jack Crawford, who who was the Lake County prosecutor for about 10 years. He was a Democrat, very much saw himself as inspired by the Kennedys. And yet he really ingested that 80s tough on crime ethos that was on the rise. You know, he went for the death penalty 22 times during his time as prosecutor, got it 17 times, got the death sentence, and did not have to ask for, to, to, to try to pursue the death penalty for the four girls in this case, because it was Paul and three of her friends who were all ninth and 10th graders who had taken part in this robbery of this home invasion. And she was the one who actually, you know, stabbed Mrs. Pelkey. He was able to pursue it for two of the girls. But I was so, I was really impressed, let's say, by the fact that, you know, week one, he's got a press conference going. He's announcing he's going to try to go for death for all four girls, 14, 15, 16 years old. That's a statement. I tried not to have that color the book too much. I only mention that just because sometimes the Democrats kind of try to forget the role that the party has played in the whole tough on crime approach to justice as well. Yeah. And I think another thing that was kind of surprising is when he was confronted by people in his life, either in his past or present, kind of saying, hey, this is kind of crazy. Like, they're very young. What are you thinking? Like, you're kind of out of your mind. He was surprised by that reaction. Like he was shocked that anybody would want anything less than the death penalty for these children. It was a really fascinating scenario, right? What happened was that there was so much crime at the time in Gary. It was competing with Detroit for the FBI's murder capital of the U.S., you know, proportionate to the population. You had a lot of a lot of people in the community who actually felt comfortable with an aggressive prosecutor, right? And there were no protests when 
this girl was sentenced to death for something she did at 15. But I think you're referring to how he he one day gets a call from an, an ex-girlfriend who he knew in high school and in college who just looked up his office because she'd heard about this case in the news and just wanted to call him to say, you know, I'm shocked at you. I'm shocked and I'm disappointed. I don't care how serious this crime was, what these girls did. It is completely out of hand for you to be doing this. And it really knocked him backwards. He told me about that conversation decades and decades later, right? And I ended up tracking her down. And I'll, I'll tell you, she was really thrilled that one phone call had made <laughs> any kind of impact on, on his conscience. He didn't change his energy. But I think that sometimes we have elected officials who operate to some degree in a bubble, right? Unless someone who's personally connected to them can pierce that, they're not going to really hear the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to pivot a little bit to something a little bit more inspirational and probably was the main theme throughout the book was this relationship between Paula and Bill Pelkey, who was the grandson of Ruth. Uh, so what made you want to explore this relationship between the two of them? Oh, there were so many things. It it just, I was just so surprised. I, I, at the time, had never heard of a scenario where someone had lost a loved one. They had been killed by a stranger, and they felt moved to forgive that person, and not just privately, quietly, personally, but publicly, and to reach out. I mean, to me, that was totally shocking. And I wanted to know right away, okay, what, what was the thinking behind that or the emotion? I was also really struck by the fact you have this girl who was 15. She's a young Black girl from a terrible home, who had been bounced around through the, you know, emergency shelter system, foster care, et cetera, juvenile detention. Then you have this man who's almost 40 years old. He's a white man. He's a lifelong steel mill worker, Vietnam vet. Their lives in that community did not cross. They had nothing in common generationally. They didn't go to the same parts of Gary. You know, it was like Gary had a has a, a very segregated past. And that was, you could still feel that in effect, especially back then in the 80s. What was that relationship like? And it became a real friendship. So there was one night that I describe in the book where Bill clocks in at the steel mill. He's called in for a late shift. And it's actually quiet. He finds himself, he finds himself alone up in the crane high above the mill where they melt down the steel. And he's thinking about a lot of issues that have, you know, a lot of parts of his personal life had started to go wrong. His girlfriend had left him. He was bankrupt. And the sorrow of his grandmother's death was also very much still with him. It was a few months after all of the sentencings of the girls. And he suddenly just broke down and had a thought that, you know, I feel like I've disappointed myself, I've disappointed my family, and now we're going to go and disappoint my grandmother if we allow the state to execute this girl in her name. How, how can we not see that that's not something she would have wanted? And he had a moment of actually having empathy for this teenage girl he'd never really interacted with. And so he, the next day, he takes some printer paper from the foreman's office. And when he's up in the crane, 
he starts drafting with a pen a letter to this girl on death row, trying to figure out, you know, what would I even say to her to try to tell her, you know, I want to help you. I forgive you. And they ultimately wrote hundreds of letters and hundreds of emails to each other over many years. And their relationship became a genuine friendship where he was confessing things about his own life to her in prison. She was sharing all kinds of intimate stuff with him. I couldn't resist. What is more fascinating than that? (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Yeah, I, I kept trying to think, you know, if I were in a situation like this, you know, what would I think about? Like if one of my loved ones died that way to somebody else. And it's hard because you really don't know until you're in a situation like that. But to do what he did is incredible. And the relationship that they had was awesome. And even what came out of that with all of the movements for raising awareness about the death penalty for juveniles. Yeah. Well, just to back up for a second, you know, we can talk about the relationship this way now in such a positive way, but I just want to reiterate, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody thought this was a good idea on either side. You know, Paula's sister, Rhonda, just thought, are you kidding me? He says he wants to forgive you. What do you, why, why should any of us trust him? I bet she, she just said straight up. Have you ever heard of something like this? It makes no sense. Absolutely not. No way. I'm not supporting this. And it took so many years for Rhonda to be won over. And that's a whole other piece of the book. And then Bill's family just thought he had lost it. His girl, his on and off girlfriend, Judy, who then later became his wife, she just told him, you know, you're nuts. You've lost your mind. This is insane. His coworkers called him a bleeding heart liberal to his face, which was an epic insult. Eventually, Bill ends up by meeting some other people through who are involved in, in Paula's appeal. He ends up connecting with one, then two, then three other people who are murder victims' family members as well, who also chose not to support the pursuit of the death penalty in their cases, right? And then they start getting together at each other's houses and writing letters and organizing phone calls. And this really loose collective starts forming of murder victim family members who just who believe in another form of justice. They don't want death to be on the table. And they start speaking to the press and speaking publicly to try to give a sense that the victims' families do not always agree with the prosecutors. And that's the assumption that they line up with whatever the prosecutor's agenda is. And that is just not always the case. And that was, for me, an incredible thing to explore. I met so many of the people in this network that Bill helped put together. It's called The Journey. And so that became, you know, in a lot of ways, the the obvious place to end the book would be dealing directly with Paula's case. But I wanted to push it farther, you know, and also explore the work that Bill started to do with this network. Yeah, it was very interesting to read about all of that and see. Like, I also liked seeing the dates with everything and how everything just feels as recent as today, because it is. I mentioned at some point that you had people like Bud Welch, who was the father of a victim of the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh, involved with the journey. 
David Kaczynski, the brother of Ted Kaczynski, who was known as the Unabomber, he has done events over the years and continues to do events with the journey. For me, it was really interesting too to see like how it, how this story ended up, you know, clicking into sync with events that are more recent that I knew about already, right? And that was really fascinating. So each of the individuals in this story, from Paula's upbringing to her present day while her sentencing was happening, and then the years following that, all of the individuals who played a role either in her case or in the aftermath of what happened. And all of these stories added more dimension to, you know, the setting, what was happening in Paula's life and the Pelkey's life and everything like that. So what was the research process like and what did you take away from all of this? When I was approaching the the book initially, I, you know, I started to realize that <clears throat> maybe it was kind of a Venn diagram, you know, the structure of the book where you have Paula and Bill's relationship at the center. And then these circles that overlap in a lot of different directions, you know, my, my rule in pursuing the story, writing the book, was that everyone should be one degree of separation from Paula or Bill, right? And But I really wanted to give a sense of all the parts of the system and the community that this one event ended up touching. So you have Paula's sister, Rhonda, you know, that personal relationship and how this crime, even though Rhonda did not in any way take part in this crime, it changed her life forever. Her friends and a lot of family members, members of the church she was baptized in, they absolutely iced her out the moment her sister was arrested. Um, she was harassed by the media, you know, and then she lived for a long time in constant fear that her sister, who she loved passionately, would be put to death, right? I mean, an enormous impact. And we don't really think in general about what impact a sentence has on the loved ones who didn't commit the crime, right? But then you have Bill on the other side, you know, Ruth's son, his piece of the puzzle. And then you have the judge who, you know, was forced into this decision. You have the appellate team. And I really, I loved getting to know some of the attorneys as characters, interviewing them and sort of, honestly, in some ways, the role of an attorney is paperwork, filing motions, you know, that kind of, it's, it's rarely like it looks on TV, you know, mm -hmm. in the procedurals, <laughs> but there was really a tremendous amount of superhero work being done through these papers that everyone was filing. So there's Monica Foster, who was one of her appellate attorneys. And Monica was a passionate advocate for Paula and was, you know, at first, when she first heard about the crime, personally was really intimidated by the idea of going to meet with this teenage girl who'd committed this terrible act. You know, who am I going to meet? She even said at one point, you know, looking back, I think I was worried I was going to go and meet some kind of animal. Because what person who is truly a human being is capable of doing that? She shows up to meet with her on death row and finds this girl who is so depressed, who is so overwhelmed, and who actually believes that she 
may be taken to the electric chair at any moment. No one had bothered to explain to her how the process worked, right? So that was really the moment when Monica understood, okay, this girl really needs help. And, and not only as an attorney, but as a, you know, a fellow human being, right? And, and then you have, you know, there's a series of other players who, who end up on Paula's team, Victor Stribe, the only professor working on the death penalty for juveniles as an issue back then in the 80s. He came on board and took part in arguing her case before the Indiana Supreme Court. And he ended up taking part in two different U.S. Supreme Court cases about this issue. So you kind of, I started to draw through the book, like connect the dots between these different characters until we get all the way up to the Supreme Court ending the death penalty for teenagers for juveniles in 2005. So you start with this really intimate, horrible event of this crime, this one specific community in Indiana. And it, you know, goes all the way to the highest court in the country. And that was incredible to see. I think part of it is that, you know, there's so many issues we're grappling with right now in the country, a lot of stuff that we have to be concerned about. And you can feel that your actions and your decisions don't really add up to much at all. But this book gave me a lot of hope because it tracks the decisions of so many individuals one by one who ended up flipping this issue. You know, they lives were saved. Young people's lives were saved through this, through this process. And I was really, I was moved by that. It really, it really gave me some sense of hope. You know, maybe it does matter. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm just thinking about you know, the representatives in Gary who tried getting a minimum age for the death penalty. And back then, even saying 18, which would make a little bit of sense if we're going to try to put a minimum age on this. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the, you know, representatives in Gary. There's such an incredible cast of characters in this book. And one of them is Senator Erlene Rogers. So she was born and raised in Gary, African American. Her family was had, you know, deep like three generations of roots in the city by the time she was born. And that, you know, she'd been living on the same street corner for years. She stayed in Gary her whole life. She was a public school teacher who one day just decided, you know what, I want to represent my community. And she ran for office and she ended up in the state Senate. She ended up, I mean, she really like moved up the ladder in the state. At the time, she was an elected representative who was fairly green. She she would say, say this herself. She was a woman. She was black. She was a school teacher. No one was that eager to hear her opinion on the death penalty, right? But in part because she put in all these years teaching in Gary's public schools, she knew really deeply within herself that the ability of a 15-year-old to control her act, to be seen as responsible and as culpable as an adult, I mean, this is just not, it doesn't make any sense, right, to try a kid, especially with death on the table, in the same way you would an adult. And so I think it was the day after the sentence was handed down for Paula, she made a public statement to the press, I am going to introduce a bill in the next session to raise the minimum age so we don't have this happen ever again. 
my goal is for us not to kill kids. We don't have to agree on the exact minimum age right now, but I think we can all agree we shouldn't be killing kids. And, you know, she had this great, straightforward way of talking. And I just loved her to pieces. I felt so lucky to get to know her. There are so many things that get brought up in this book and so many moments where you're reading something and you're just like, wow, like, how, how is this one even allowed? How did we not think about this before? Why was this a thing? Like another one I'm thinking of is, you know, with the death penalty, individuals who have some sort of disability or mental cap, you know, they were killing those people. And it's just like the compassion, empathy, understanding just isn't there. There's something really deeply ingrained in our culture. And maybe you can say it goes back to Puritan times or, you know, this ethos of the Wild West settler who is an individualist and has to fend for himself. This idea that we're all, we should all be able to do for ourselves and don't screw up or you will be punished thoroughly. It's a harsh culture in some very deep ways. So when we talk about being tough on crime, I think the majority of Americans just absorb that message, even though the data does not support that as a successful strategy. Harsher, longer sentences do not deter crime, right? The death penalty does not deter crime. It's an idea and it's an emotional idea. You know, you, Victor Stribe, who I mentioned, the, the professor who took part in Paula's case, one thing he found so frustrating was that, you know, he's, he's, a, he's this great kind of nerdy professorial type and he couldn't believe how hard it was to have a logical legal conversation with the average person around the death penalty. The, the amount of yelling in his face he experienced over the course of his career really shocked him because it's just, it's when we talk about violent crime, the immediate gut response is one that is emotional and angry. But, you know, he talked about you can't write law around that. You can't have a system that works and you can't have a healthy community built on just emotional, angry responses. So, you know, one of the challenges that Bill faced and a number of people on the journey faced was how do you get past that initial irrational, very deeply felt angry response and then maybe have a chance to see what would be, what what's actually going to be a long-term better solution? You know, he couldn't live with the idea that someone might be killed in his grandmother's name or in the name of his family. Once he realized that, it completely changed his response to the situation. Once he met with Paula's grandfather in person and her sister, once he was writing letters to her and getting letters back from this kid on death row, you know, it humanized everyone involved. And it's kind of, it's super fascinating the degree to which our system is built to keep families on either side of any case apart, as if there's a danger that they might find that they have some kind of humanity in common and they might complicate the goals of the process. And I, I will admit, I never thought about that before researching this book. And now I think about that a lot, you know, and I think it's part of a larger topic in our country where we really are so divided. What is it? that might help us to reach across 
the aisle. Is that a possibility? Yeah, that was the best segue for my last question to you. And there's a quote at the beginning of the book, more of a question of justice and its definition. It's posed to the readers to kind of ponder. And throughout the book, the topic of justice and retribution is debated. In your opinion, in cases specific to the ones like Paula Cooper or just in general, what do you think justice is or should be? Oh, my goodness. That is a tough, that is a tough question. I mean, it's a constant work in progress. Justice has to acknowledge the seriousness of the crime committed, and it needs to give voice to the victims, but without creating more victims, whether we mean someone who's been executed because of a death sentence or punishment that also penalizes family members, right, who did not take part in the crime. And it's got to be something that has a long view. What is going to be best for the community? You're talking about like rehab and treatments. Oh, absolutely. I really hope that we can shift away from being such a punitive culture, you know, and having a, a justice system that is so punitive and so geared towards retribution and to really shift it increasingly towards rehabilitation, the long view, the idea that people re-enter society. What kind of person do you want to have re-entering your community? That's, that's the biggest question. So let's all act accordingly. You know, it means, it means, you know, anger is extremely healthy and human, but I guess the biggest challenge remains for us to somehow set that aside long enough to look at that bigger question of what's going to build a better community and a stronger community. I really don't have the answer to, (laughs) (laughs) I can only raise these questions myself as a writer, but, but this book, working on this book really taught me that what we define as justice in any given situation has way bigger ramifications than you may realize in the moment. There's a ripple effect, and you can't ignore that. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on and talking with us today about... Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.